Let us pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Psalter reading this morning is from chapter 1 of the book of Psalms. In this passage, the psalmist is considering how blessed he was by God's grace and contrasting that with those who didn't love the Lord. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of our Lord.
Today's New Testament reading comes from the first chapter of Acts, selected verses. You can follow along on page 993 in your pew Bible. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons. Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, he said, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called, called Barsabbas, who was known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, a survey by the Pew Research Center made headlines in the church world. It revealed that from 2007 to 2014, the percentage of American adults claiming to be Christian dropped by eight percentage points. In only seven years, it went from 79% to 71%. Of course, this was not a new trend. The percentage of Christians in our country has been declining for decades. But what was striking about this survey is that it found declines across all ages and all denominations. And it showed the sharpest decline among mainline Protestant denominations like our own. Now this news caused much anxiety for some and some joy for other people. For those with a bone to pick with the church, they saw these statistics as the natural consequence of centuries of oppression and injustice perpetuated by the church clergy abuse scandals, homophobia, and the church's centuries of support for slavery. For them, these numbers, these declining numbers, were a sign of the bill coming due. For others within the church, these statistics served as proof that we, as a church, have strayed quite far from our foundational truths revealed to us in the scriptures. For them, the decline in participation, specifically in mainline Protestant churches more prone to liberal views was a natural consequence for straying far from the truth. Now what I find interesting about both of these interpretations is that neither one of them leaves much room, much space for the concept of grace, for the idea that God loves us and that God is always doing a new thing with us and for us and in us whether or not we are faithful. 
There's another way to interpret these declining numbers. It's my preferred way. That while not as popular, does have scriptural support. We can see these declining numbers as good news. Good news in the gospel sense, that is. The church's decline is so ubiquitous, so steep, so all-consuming, coming from every angle, it seems, one has to wonder if God is the one behind it. For as the church diminishes in size and influence, as we become a smaller and smaller percentage of the population, as we become less intertwined with popular culture, our reality as Christians begins to better reflect, better mirror the reality of the early church, the first followers of Jesus, who had no special standing in their culture and who represented a tiny fraction of the population, a group commissioned and empowered by God to change the world by sharing some really good news. Now, much of what we know about this early church, these first disciples, these first followers of Christ, comes to us from the book of Acts, a book that is all about what happens after Jesus returns to God and sends his Holy Spirit among and upon his followers. In Acts, we get Pentecost, Paul and Peter's missionary journeys, and the growth of the early church despite so much resistance. The book of Acts is all about the Spirit of God compelling the earliest disciples to share the good news to Jew and Gentile alike. Today's account, though, from Acts, today's story is a unique one because in it we get a brief glimpse of that time after Jesus ascends into heaven, which is what takes place in the first 11, chapters of, first 11 verses of chapter 1, and before the Spirit arrived, which happens in chapter 2. In today's passage, we get a glimpse of the first followers of Jesus in between the promise of the Spirit and its fulfillment. Jesus has left them, and they're waiting. For what, though, they're not quite sure, but they've been told to wait for a gift to come. Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven are this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The disciples are told to wait for a gift from God that will enable them to do the work they have been commissioned and commanded to do. But the disciples, it appears, like us, are terrible at waiting. The disciples do in those 10 days between the promise and fulfillment what most of us tend to do when anxiety and uncertainty take over as we wait for God to act in our lives. It's the very thing that churches across the country and the world are in danger of doing now, in my opinion, firing up the machinery through which we do church rather than trusting in the presence and the work of God's Holy Spirit. In the late 1960s, the children at a California preschool took part in an experiment designed to measure self-control. Each child was brought into a room where there was a table holding a tray of big, white, fluffy marshmallows. 
the researcher gave each child one marshmallow and then made the kids this offer. Hey, you can eat this marshmallow right now, that's totally fine, but if you wait for a few minutes while holding on to this marshmallow, I'll come back in a little while and give you a second one as well. The researcher would then walk out and press record on the videotape machine to watch the kids, record the kids as they waited. And most of them, most of them, not all, most of them at least tried for a while to hold out for that second marshmallow. They employed a variety of techniques, smart kids as they were. Some covered up their eyes so they couldn't see the marshmallow. Some sang songs to distract themselves. Others kicked the desk or played with a stuffed animal. But as you might have guessed in time, most of the kids failed. The majority of the children were, were able to wait for less than three minutes before succumbing to the urge to gobble up the treat. Only about 30% were successful in holding out for that second marshmallow. Jesus himself promised the disciples that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And for a while they waited for the promise. They even prayed. But in the end, the temptation to do church was just too strong. Maybe they were embarrassed by the fact that one of the twelve, one of those who knew Jesus best, had in the end betrayed him. Perhaps they were worried that without the magical number of twelve, twelve being a holy number in the Hebrew Bible, perhaps with only eleven, God couldn't work miracles through them. Or maybe they were just bored, tired of waiting for God to act. Whatever the case, they formed the first apostle nominating committee, drew up a job description, identified two final candidates, and then employed the age-old method of tapping into God's will, casting lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. Matthias, didn't he write one of the best-known Gospels? No. Matthias, yes, he founded a religious order, right? No. Matthias, he's the one mentioned throughout church history as a faithful follower of Christ who started a bunch of new churches, right? No. After today's vote, we never hear of Matthias ever again. In their anxiety and worry about what God will do next and when God's going to do it, the first followers take matters into their own hands. And if they'd only waited, they would have quickly discovered that the Holy Spirit could do much more with them than they could ever do on their own. As one preacher put it, the church would do well to remember Matthias, a hallmark of our futile efforts to arrange God's work on our own. Jesus never instructed the disciples to choose another apostle, nor did he establish any criteria by which one should be chosen. What he did tell them to do was wait, to wait for the Spirit. And when that Spirit arrives in time, Immediately and drastically, everything changes. Jesus' followers gain the ability to speak in new languages and share the gospel with all kinds of people who could have never heard it before. Then the same Spirit reveals that God's love and grace extends far beyond what anyone had expected to all manner of people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And finally, through the Holy Spirit, God does choose a twelfth apostle, not Matthias, 
but someone no one could have predicted, a devout Jew named Saul, who persecuted the church, persecuted the first followers of Jesus, doing everything in his power to put a stop to the strange movement. The Lord appears to Saul on a road, changes his name to Paul, and puts Paul's zeal and passion to work spreading the good news, not just incrementally, but exponentially. Benjamin Zander, conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, is a renowned speaker and teacher. It's a presentation, a pretty famous one you can watch online of his. In the presentation, he shares that only 3% of people, only 3% identify themselves as lovers of classical music. Only 3% of the population purchase, listen to, and enjoy classical music. So naturally, most classical musicians think they should be working as hard as they can to increase that number from 3% to 4. That would be exponential, a huge increase. Xander has a different idea. He thinks this number can be increased not just incrementally, but exponentially in a real sense of the word. He operates from the assumption that everyone, yes, everyone, can and should and would love classical music if they only knew how to listen and what to listen for. A paltry 3%, he argues, is not a function of the music. He argues it's a function of the leadership. He writes, it is one of the characteristics of a leader that he not doubt for one moment the capacity of people he's leading to realize what he is dreaming. In other words, a leader's passion for her cause must be completely infectious. And Benjamin Zander's passion for classical music is just that. It's inspiring and engaging and totally contagious. And this is the kind of passion and leadership the true 12th apostle, Paul, has for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A passion that was given to him by God and received by the other 11. From where we sit today, the decision of the first followers to form a committee, sounds very Presbyterian, and job a job description, and identify candidates, and choose the 12th apostle by casting lots. Looking back, this seems a little bit short-sighted. We know what comes at Pentecost. God's vision for them, for the gospel, for the church is so much bigger than what they were imagining at the time. It's easy to cast a little bit of judgment upon them for casting lots to choose an apostle. But we've all had those times when God's work, when God's very presence is really hard to discern. And in those times, as we wait, we grow impatient. And it's in those moments, those times of anxiety and uncertainty, when we feel the urge to manage God and to figure things out for ourselves. We don't want to wait. And so we act, often in the name of God. Craig Barnes is now the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, but for many years he was the pastor of Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, a church not that far from the campus of Carnegie Mellon University. Because of its proximity to the university, the church had a population of college students who regularly participated in the life of the church. One day a young man came to see Reverend Barnes. He needed help making a life decision. This young man was an engineer, engineering student graduating with honors, and he had two excellent, amazing job offers, one in Houston, Texas, and one in Baltimore, Maryland. 
The problem was he had to make a choice, and he didn't know what to do. He told Reverend Barnes how worried he was about making the wrong choice since he really wanted to follow God's will for his life. Unfortunately, Reverend Barnes was not much help to the young man, at least not in the way the man wanted him to be. I have no idea which job you should take, he told him. As Barnes tells the story, it's usually at this point when people realize why pastoral counseling is free. Houston, Baltimore, he says, what does it matter? God is going to be wherever you go. You are free to choose and then go and see what God has in store for you when you get there. In times of uncertainty, in times when we can't figure out what the future holds, we are always tempted, both as individuals and as a church, to channel our anxiety into action, to work harder, to gather information, to manage whatever we can manage, even, sometimes, God. This is not to say that when we do the work of the church, we are always trying to manage God. Not at all. God has given us the freedom to do the ministry and mission to which we have been called. But when we do that work and that ministry and that mission from a sense of anxiety or worry that leads us to believe that we somehow on our own must shore up the church in the face of change and decline, if we take that attitude, we might just miss the unexpected and totally unpredictable and wonderful work of God's Holy Spirit. Yes, the percentage of those in our country who call themselves Christians is decreasing. And yes, those of us who are in the church are called to address the trend, but we are called to do so not from a spirit of anxiety or fear, from a spirit of hope. And that hope will not be found in looking back at what worked before or doubling down at what we're currently doing. That hope will come, as it did for the first followers of Jesus, from the gift of the Holy Spirit, a spirit that will surprise us, a spirit that will move us in directions we never could have predicted going, a spirit that will empower us and enliven us to spread the good news. That is always what we are waiting for, for God to act. When the Spirit comes, may we be ready to receive it. Amen.